It's the year 1200 in Trondheim, Norway, and a young woman is walking the streets of this bustling little city on the coast of central Norway. Although it's far from mainland Europe, it's an important ecclesiastical center and a prosperous place with perhaps 3,000 inhabitants or more. The archbishop, the See of Nidaros, is rich and powerful and trades in treasures from the far north, walrus tusks, dried cod, and furs. But this young woman, let's call her Ragna, probably isn't thinking much about that. Instead, she's probably thinking about how really rotten she feels. She's got a fever and chills, her abdomen hurts, not in one place, but everywhere. Ragna, researchers have figured out, has a disease that no one thought was found in Europe in the Middle Ages. Pathogen called Salmonella enterica, um, and in particular something called the Paracel lineage. This pathogen that we essentially thought is not really a thing of ever Europe was running around 800 years ago, clearly causing a lot of damage, probably killing people. It would be another 150 years before the dreaded Black Death arrived on Norwegian shores. Yet here was another potent killer, prowling medieval Trondheim. You'd think there would be a trace in the written records of the time, but there isn't. What's even more surprising about this particular pathogen is how researchers were able to identify it in Ragna's 800-year-old skeleton. Because they found their evidence between her teeth. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how researchers are fishing out fascinating stories from places like Trondheim's medieval cemeteries, latrine wastes, and dental plaque, and how they're using information from these unlikely sources to see how diseases change the way medieval populations behave, and how that can help us understand how pandemics like SARS-CoV-2 happen so we can better combat pandemics in the future. The backbone of this entire story is what happens when medieval Trondheim meets modern technology. It turns out there's more to Ragna and other 800-year-old skeletons than what lies between their teeth. So let's begin at the beginning, of Trondheim, that is. Trondheim was and still is a, a town at the outskirts of Europe. It's sort of Ultima Thule. Ultima Thule, the Latin phrase that means, essentially, distant place located beyond the borders of the known world. And our guide to this distant place is... My name is Axel Christoffersen, and I am a professor in historical archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology and Cultural History, the Science Museum. Back in 2016, Axel got interested in the medical archaeology of Trondheim, and not just because it happens to be the town where the University Museum, where he works, is located. 
they had a really good archaeological sources from this town because there has been a lot of professional archaeological excavations in this town from the beginning of the 1970s. And the conditions for preserving organic material and skeletons are superb. Axel and his colleagues decided they wanted to look at a broad swath of time, all the way back to the year 1000 and up to 1600, which is more or less the beginning of modern times. It also includes the period in the 1300s where all of Europe was devastated by the Black Death. So there's a lot going on if you're interested in how diseases affected medieval populations. And plus, the practice of archaeology, like many other scientific endeavors, has really been revolutionized by our ability to study DNA and other secrets hidden in human bodies. So let's step back in time to see what it was like back in the year 1000, about 200 years before Ragnar walked around in this little town on one of Norway's largest fjords. Trondheim is located on a peninsula close to the estuary or the, the river Nid. And it originates from a small trading place, which was established around the 900. In the second half of the 900s, it became a, a regional trading place, a Köpang, we call them. It was a condensed population around a little bay, consisting of, uh, of around 250 people. And, but it expanded rapidly through the 11th and 12th century. So uh, when we are at its peak around 1300, still 4,000 people living in this. And that is an averagely big city compared with other Nordic uh, towns uh, around 1300. One of the biggest cities in, uh, in Scandinavia at that time. So 800 years ago, when Ragnar lived here, there were likely several thousand people living in Trondheim. And as Axel said, it was a regional trading place with lots of people coming in from all over Northern Europe, converging on the city. But compared to North European standard, it was very little. Paris had 20,000 uh, and also London, so it was little, but, uh, but in this Nordic hemisphere, it was quite uh, big. Because it was a quite rapid population expansion during the 11th and 12th century. About that population expansion, it turns out that Ragna also had a second secret, preserved for eternity, in her bones. Remember Axel said that one reason they decided to do a deep dive into medieval Trondheim was because of all the well-preserved skeletons? It turns out these skeletons have a lot of stories to tell, not just from their DNA, but because of something called isotopes. This is a little complicated, so stay with me. Isotopes are variants of elements that are found in small quantities. Most people have heard of carbon-14 dating. Carbon-14 is a variant of carbon that can be used to date organic material. But other chemical isotopes can tell biologists and archaeologists where you lived at certain periods of your life, in part based on what you eat or the water you drank. Tom Gilbert, a professor at NTNU University Museum, as well as head of the Center for Evolutionary Genomics at the University of Copenhagen, 
who we heard from at the top of the podcast, explains. So your bone changes through time. If you take a bit of your femur and look at the isotopes, it will give you where you've been the last four or five years. If you take your hair, it will be the last few weeks or months. Enamel is where you were a kid, where you were when your teeth were developing. Trondheim has a remarkable skeletal collection um, from or collected around the town, dating back about a thousand years. And we've actually been studying what pathogens are in these samples, what that might tell us about the past. Like Ragna, whose skeleton was excavated from what archaeologists have identified as the medieval ruins of St. Olav's Church Cemetery. She and many other skeletons were found here during a 12-year-long archaeological dig that started in 1973. The main public library in the town center was subsequently built on this site. You can even see some of the graveyard's remains, including skeletons, preserved in the library's lowest level. And her isotopic signal actually, as far as I remember, is consistent with either very North Norway or actually Greenland or possibly Iceland. So it suggests she was some degree of a migrant. I mean, uh, genetically, she's a a Viking, but Vikings are over these regions. So she didn't actually grow up in in Trondheim at the early age. And uh, yeah, so she could come from any of these regions. Vikings! And it turns out that Ragna's disease tells us something else about what it was like in Trondheim at that time. Given that this sequence has got a very special form, we can actually guess it actually looks like it probably did originate in Europe originally, which we would have no idea about otherwise. Possibly actually through a contact with pigs, we had various evidence to point to that, so it might be one of these pathogens that, that arises once humans start basically domesticating animals and living too close with pigs. These pathogens can jump across to humans and start things. Hmm. Maybe Ragna or whoever infected her could have gotten her disease through contact with pigs? Yet the research Axel and his colleagues have done suggests the city itself wasn't quite as filthy as it's portrayed by Hollywood. People, they have their thoughts of the Middle Ages from uh, <laughs> Monty Python, yes, or uh, the Vikings or Game of Thrones. And uh, in this fictional uh, series, the uh, environment is not correctly uh, shown. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. It was cleaner. Uh, that, that's one thing. It was, it was cleaner because... The, the waste material was not thrown around. Axel says the town wouldn't be considered clean by our standards. But animal waste and food scraps and the like weren't just tossed out into the streets. Instead, people were really deliberate with how they used these materials. And they used these wastes. To level the surface for buildings and for streets because sand and gravel, you, you couldn't get that everywhere. Yeah, let's say from the second half of the 11th century, it seems that they started to care more about the physical environment. And part of the way we know this is because of how they handled their water. There's one whole PhD candidate working on this issue. My name is Elisabeth Förresta Svensson, and I am a PhD candidate at the NTNU University Museum. And currently I'm working on uh, medieval archaeology, 
I'm looking at uh, water and waste management in Trondheim in the medieval and also early modern age. Elizabeth is doing a lot of digging, but not in the way you might think. When I'm working, I wish I could say I was digging, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> I'm more like a documentation archaeologist at the moment, so I'm looking at the old excavations. So I'm looking at excavations from 1928, from 1937, from 1945, and also from the 1970s, and from also the 1990s. Think of Elizabeth as a sleuth who's totally passionate about figuring out what all the little clues in the documents from the old excavations can tell her. Well, archaeology in itself, it's very interesting because you kind of get a different view of the history that's not in the history books. It's something that's not been in the light before. It's the remains that no one actually intended to be found. You know, it's... Uh, it's kind of the secret of the people of the past. Yeah, but it's not secrets because it's their daily life. It's their, how they ate, how they walked, how they built their houses. It's the normal things. It's not the elite stuff the much. It's, yeah, it's the common man, the common woman, the common child. By using powerful computer mapping programs to combine literally thousands of observations from the different excavations, Elizabeth can begin to see patterns. What I have done actually is to uh, use these drawings that are now in PDF files and I have uh, put them into this map program, ArcMap, and I have georeferenced them in real time so I can see exactly where they are in Trondheim now. Elizabeth says the oldest drawings are extremely detailed because archaeologists at that time used drawings rather than photographs to precisely record what they saw. So actually from these oldest excavations, the drawings are the most important. The drawings of wells, the drawings of drainage ditches, drawings of latrines, uh, they kind of mapped it in a, in a spatial uh, map like they draw the outer edge of their excavation and then they neatly draw small parts of the wood. Uh, also, they could have detailed drawings of one specific piece of wood, how it was cut. It was so nicely done, really, really nice. So, why do we care about where old drainage ditches and latrines were placed in medieval Trondheim? It may seem trivial, but it's not this question of what townspeople did for drinking water, but also with their wastewater. Because that disease that Ragna had, it's mainly spread by animal feces, or to use the technical term, poop. So, somebody living in a medieval town, if they wanted to stay healthy, they had to make sure that they could drain any water contaminated by waste away from wherever they got their drinking water. So mapping where and when drainage ditches, wells, and cisterns were constructed related to the medieval streets and houses helps Elizabeth and her colleagues figure out 
uh, or what kind of water and waste management can we trace in the medieval and early modern environment? And if there's a change, uh, is there a change in the public from a private to a public responsibility? And does this relate to a, a, in a developing a sense of health and how to manage health? And is this uh, visible in the management of water and waste management? It's still early in Elizabeth's research, but a few things are beginning to come clear. One is that drinking water was a challenge, even though the settlement was on a river in a place where water is plentiful. As she looks at her compilation of drainage, ditches, water wells, and latrines, it's clear from their placement that the wells could be contaminated either by dirty runoff, whether wash water or water from a latrine, and because Trondheim is right on the fjord, if medieval residents dug their wells deep enough, the seawater from the nearby fjord would seep into the bottom of the well and make it undrinkable. At the same time, there's the Black Death, which arrived in Norway in 1349. So whatever plans townspeople might have had to improve their water situation were likely put on hold at least for a little while. The Black Death affected everything. Tom Gilbert says he and his colleagues were able to study the genetics of roughly 200 people from this period. What we can say very clearly right now, there was a big demographic change in Trondheim because in addition to what genes are there, you can actually assign population origin. And so we can see before the plague comes in, before like 1349 or whatever, um, there's a lot of mobility to Trondheim. We can see lots of genes in the people derived in particular from the British Isles, which fits with like, you know, the Vikings going backward and forward. Yep, those Vikings like to wander. So we, we see a lot of mobility to Trondheim before 1347. After, nothing. There's, there's no mobility coming in. They look like very, very, they look like modern, very, very local Trondheimers. So, so you can actually see in the genetics, it goes from this cosmopolitan place where people are coming out to essentially a, a backwater of little importance, which is documented by, in the history, it is the capital and then it's not the capital, it's the center of the walrus ivory trade and then it isn't, right? But, but clearly it was only drawing from a very narrow place. So the fact you see it so striking in the genetics around the time of the plague, it goes from all this gene flow coming into nothing, it's kind of, kind of cool. And that again actually has pathogen implications because the more people coming in, the more pathogens you're bringing in. And actually if you're just a dead backwater bringing in the local pathogens, it's another thing. So you can actually see some quite fascinating things in the human population from the results. The Black Death also clearly affected the way people and town authorities took responsibility for public health. And here's one more example of how the archaeological findings help support what historians know of the time. After the Great Plague, then they knew that they had to keep distance. And here we thought social distancing was a relatively new phenomenon. They had to, to improve their physical environment, but still there was this religious mentality who says that uh, you are sick because you have done something wrong and, and God will punish you. So what they did during the Middle Ages was to pray commonly to God outside and, and inside the churches to please God and to say that we are sorry for being bad people and things like that. 
But during the plague, they did that in the 14th century. There was people who punished themselves to say to God that we want to be good people to please you. But it didn't work. They saw that. I, we could pray to God and we could be as good people as we could. But even good people died from diseases. And the result? They started to mistrust the religious authorities. They gradually changed mentality from being directed by religious rules to take more knowledge from their own worldly experiences. And this experience told people that we need to have a clean environment. They improved the laws, improved their own cleanliness and the environmental uh, cleanliness. So what did town leaders do? They were legally forced to brew beer, of course, because when they brew beer, they disinfected the water. So this was indirectly a way to improve the, the water. So the urban town authorities, they made it possible for all people to have some access to something to drink. And we think this was some sort of very, very early what we call biopolitics. But what's even more interesting is that town authorities avoided the ultimate responsibility for providing clean drinking water for residents for more than a century. Instead, residents had to walk roughly two kilometers to get fresh, clean water from a little creek called Elabecken. And some of the cisterns that Elizabeth has drawn on her maps were almost certainly used to collect rainwater for drinking since the wells themselves weren't safe to drink. So in Trondheim, they tried to convince the uh, town authorities to build a piped water line. That didn't happen until 1777. So uh, that is another interesting thing, that during the Middle Ages, they changed mentality from health being purely individual responsibility to a sort of biopolitical activity. But due to political and economic reasons, they couldn't realize the, the plans they had for over 100 years, proving the, the water, which was absolutely the essential thing for uh, better health. Even though they knew they had to act and what they had to do to make things better, they didn't do anything. Hmm, sounds a little bit like how societies are now dealing or not, with climate change. Maybe we're not so advanced as we think we are. And what of Ragna? Another thing researchers could tell from her skeleton is that she died relatively young, between the ages of 19 and 24. And while her skeleton is the only one to date where the researchers found the Salmonella pathogen, the fact that we find it at all suggests it was very common because you only find remains of the very, very common things. It's, it's a probability game. The rarer something is, the even more unlikely you will ever find it once you factor in all the skeletons that have been lost and so on. It tells us that there's a much wider range of pathogens that, than we might imagine in Tron time in the past killing people. So we know about the Black Death because people died in droves and people wrote about it the Black Death sent European societies nearly back to the Stone Age. But here's a pathogen that's not supposed to be in Europe at all, killing people. 
It's of academic interest, of course, but think about the pandemic we're in right now. Could we have seen SARS-CoV-2 coming? Can learning about these ancient pathogens help? Tom Gilbert says yes. And again, by getting the old pathogens, one can study when does transmission happen, what kind of characteristics are needed, which again can then be translated back into the useful information for, for monitoring today. So it's, it's about extra knowledge, where do things come from, how do they adapt, how easy is it for pathogens to jump? This is actually a very big debate right now in the influenza world. That's a question we're all learning to care about more, given the coronavirus pandemic. And that brings us back again to Ragna. 800 years ago, she trod the wood-paved streets of Trondheim, unaware that the pain in her stomach was the beginning of her end. When she died and was buried in the St. Olaf's Church graveyard, she took the riddle of her death with her to be deciphered by researchers nearly a thousand years into the future. Ragna, the name the researchers gave to her, is actually an old Norse name that means advice. It raises the question of what kind of secrets or potential advice still lie hidden in these skeletons from centuries ago. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast by the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. If you want to know more about some of the findings that I've described in this podcast today, check out our show notes. Editorial help and sound design by Historia Brücke. Thanks for listening. <laughs>